So I have two texts here. One is from the English Standard Version, and another is from the New King James Version. So I'll read the English Stan Standard Version, uh, 1 Corinthians 16.22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. And then in the New King James Version, it says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. So do you see any differences between these two verses? What differences do you guys see? Does everybody have a hand out, by the way? You want to raise your hand? Yeah, raise your hand. Andrew is your man. We'll give it to you. So what, what, what are the, what's the difference that you see between these two verses? One says has not and one says does not. Okay. That's good. What else do you see? Power versus oath. Okay. Lord versus Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Okay, now that's one of the major ones, okay? One says Lord and one says Lord Jesus Christ. So why do you think one has Lord and the other one has Lord Jesus Christ? Any theories? What do you think? Jason, what do you think? Um, my mind thinks, what about the original manuscripts? Okay. Yeah, what about the original manuscripts? So, this is where we have two, um, two what we call manuscripts. Like, whenever you translate from Greek into English, uh, we don't necessarily have, like, one copy of the Greek New Testament. We have something that is kind of put together to try to come up with the original manuscript, what Paul actually said, right? So did Paul add Lord uh, Jesus Christ to Lord? Does that make sense? And so this is, a, this is what you might call a textual variant, where not all the manuscripts would agree. And there's some famous ones. Uh, have you guys ever read the end of Mark? And if you look at the footnote, you'll see a little comment that says, most ancient manuscripts do not include this. Or if you have the woman who's caught in adultery in John chapter 8, it says most original manuscripts do not include this. And so that can kind of shake people's faith, right? right? I mean, why, why is that disturbing for so many people? Maybe not for you, but maybe for somebody else, when they realize that there might be errors in the Greek. If you're building your faith on the word, and the word isn't trustworthy, you have no foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we always talk about the authority of God's word. Well, how do we know that our copy of God's word is accurate, right? So when you look at the difference between Lord and Lord Jesus Christ, is there any <coughs> theological difference between these two? I mean, do they contradict each other in any way? No, they're, they're, they're complementary, right? This is an example of a, of a textual variant, and most of them um, are pretty harmless, okay? So here's another question. Do the, does the presence of textual variants um, undermine the credibility of the Bible? What do you think? Does it undermine the credibility of the Bible, the fact that we have this textual variant? 
No, don't ask me why, okay? You know the answer is no, right? So I remember one thing that was uh -huh. super helpful for me was like a comparison of, uh, say you look at a variety of uh, texts of the Quran, where there was a gathering about, we're going to burn all of them except for like the proof copy. Yeah. Right? Whereas if you have these letters that are being copied, and mm -hmm. say you have 20 copies, and 19 of them are the same, and this one has like a different spelling, uh -huh. not only can you know what, it's, what the original text was, you can know that those were actually different, uh -huh. right? They're copied from the same thing, and so that multiplicity of um, copies helps you to check which things are, what the original has to be. Yeah. So that they're actually served to give greater weight that it wasn't just written by, you know, yeah, or changed at one point. You can't, you can't, if you want to go back and edit something and there's only one <coughs> version, uh -huh. you edit that one version and you've changed it. But if there's a thousand copies and no one has access to the other copies and they're all being circulated independent of each other, yeah, right, it makes it and impossible to. Yeah, and we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about that today. I think what we're going to find is I, I have found that when you really understand these issues, right, like a lot of times when people say, I don't believe in the Bible because it's full of mistakes. And the classic illustration that somebody will use is if you play the game telephone. You guys know the game telephone? Uh, and as it gets transmitted from person to person to person, by the end, it's laughably different. And so what people will ask is, how do we know that what we read in the Bible is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Does that make sense? You guys ever wonder that question? And I think every thinking question, a Christian will, will kind of have to reckon with that a little bit. And so, and often it gets mocked and everything, but now honestly, um, when you understand textual criticism, and what I'm about to show you is very faith affirming. Because we talk about how the Bible is inerrant, authoritative, in its original manuscript. So how do we know how we have the original manuscript? And to do that, we're going to look at um, you know, just how the Bible was written. Now, I'm going to show you some slides here, okay? So it will be dark. So this is um, a papyrus manuscript, okay? As you can see, um, there's kind of a, gr a grid you know, kind of woven through this way where they get these reeds from uh, the Nile Delta, dry them out, lay them flat, and lay them this way, then this way, and then this way, and they form a form of paper, okay? Now, uh, this, you know, they have uh, something called maybe 87 what we call papyrus manuscripts. Uh, these are the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. Some date uh, within maybe 50 years, well, maybe, uh, maybe 75 years of the authorship, original authorship. I think one goes back to 100. AD, 125 AD. Now the problem with manuscripts is um, they're cheap, <coughs> and they're cheaper than the alternative, which we'll talk about, uh, but they're also very brittle. And so they fall apart uh, easily. So the fact that we have 87 of these uh, is pretty remarkable, okay? Show me uh, the next slide. slide. Okay. <coughs> the next slide, I'll, I'll explain it to you guys. It's, um, it's, it's made, uh, basically it's called vellum. A vellum is stretched animal skin. And so they would obviously slaughter the animal, 
stretch it so that it's really, really thin. And the advantage of that is you can actually make it into a, what we call a codex or a book. It shows it on here, but it's not showing it there. It's not showing it there. Hold on. Mm. Uh, no? We'll, we'll get this going. Yeah, and you can see the, the ocean. That it's <laughs> 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 but it's very calming. Yeah. <laughs> um, what happens if you were to shut it down and open it up? Like that? Well, I have two windows. It's weird. I'll try it one more time. Okay. Interesting. All right. There it is. You know. Okay. Well, as we get it figured out. Um, so all that to say, there's, uh, you know, there's, uh, you have 266 manuscripts right now, and that would be like, you know, these vellum manuscripts, you know, these books that we have. They date, the earliest one might be uh, 4th century AD, but we have 266 of these that have the bulk of the New Testament, you know, which is pretty significant. So the point is, we don't have the original text. We don't have the original letter that Paul wrote. Uh, we do have many copies of the original text. And what we have to do is use the information that we do have to try to figure out um, you know, how to basically reconstruct the text. Okay. And so, do we get it? Okay. So yeah, over here, this is a codex. Okay, so you can see. Yeah, it's a book, and you can write. You can uh, basically write it on both sides. Much more expensive, but as the church got traction and they had more money, they were able to uh, produce some of these. So, um, yeah, I'll kind of hold off there. And then, if you look at the the chart in your on page three, so what you have to do is you have to figure out what mistakes were made in transmission, okay? And as you can see, you know, the way people normally would copy things down is everybody, all the scribes would sit in a room with their desk and they would spell out the words, they would say the words and somebody would write it down, okay? And as you can see, if, or if let's say you have like a, a copy of the text over here and you're writing it down over here, and keep in mind, it's all handwritten. It wasn't Times New Roman. Uh, you might say, is that a four or is that an N? You can see how people can easily make these kinds of mistakes. So um, you might have errors from <coughs> faulty hearing, uh, errors from faulty eyesight, errors from the mind, like a faulty short-term memory, errors in judgment, or other errors will just surface in the next section. Okay. So now through archaeology and similar disciplines, scholars have compiled over 5,300 <laughs> manuscripts of the various parts of the New Testament. This number becomes more impressive when one considers that there are only 647 manuscripts of the Bible of ancient Greece, is uh, of the Bible of ancient Greece, which is Homer's Iliad. Uh, truly, God intervened to make sure that His word got into our hands. So by the science of textual criticism, they estimate we have 98.3 to 99.5% of the original text. So this is what we're going to do. Everybody have a pen. Get a pen. And then turn your paper over. And I'm going to, we're going to do a little uh, activity here. 
Okay, and I want you to go to uh, this slide. Okay. Uh, the one that says write down the words of the passage and count the words. Okay. So we're going to we're going to do a, a, a group activity, which I think is going to be very helpful. I am going to slowly read a passage, and as I read it, you're going to write it down. Okay. I'm going to slowly read this passage, and then as I read it, you'll and then you'll you'll write it down. Okay. Ready? The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a barrel and they four had one likeness And their appearance and their work was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides. And they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful. And their rings were full of eyes round about them four. Some of you guys just gave up. I did. <laughs> Hard. Yeah. Right. So 100% I can tell you exactly okay. the word that I gave. Okay. So, <laughs> everybody count your words. Count your words.
Okay, who wants to throw out some? Let's do some numbers here. 79. 79? Okay. I can match 78. I probably made some up. We have 79, we have 83. We're below that. <laughs> okay, how many people have 78? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. 13. I'll just do 13. All right, 83. <laughs> One. <laughs> okay, now this is pretty interesting, isn't it? So how many words do you think there are? Yeah. Okay, now let's go, we're going to reconstruct it. So you guys are going to tell me the first word. B. Appearance.
So th this is how text of criticism works. We'll keep on going. Let's go. Uh, after barrel. And. Uh-huh. They. Uh-huh. Therefore. What's that? They. They. Oh. They. Four letter number. F-O-U-R. 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 Uh, 
Where's that? On the went they went upon them. Not what he went. Oh, oh so like the fourth line up. Up, 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 up. Up, 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 Right? So how many words do we have here? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, forty-one, forty-two, forty-three, forty-four, forty-five, forty-six, forty-seven, forty-eight. 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, 79. Mm -hmm. So look at that. So we're able to reconstruct it. So let's go ahead and show the next slide. And we'll see how we did. So I can try to hold it up. Yeah. So I think uh, other than other than some of the yeah, some of the punctuation, the ink barrel Scott Marshall was right, right, and then color. We think color spelled correctly because it went with the English spelling, which we could have concluded because it was obviously in King James English, right? Yeah, so there there is a way to reconstruct it. So yeah, I was wondering if you added. So like, this is from Ezekiel, but um, are there some parts that didn't like they didn't use punctuation? Like even what you know, yeah, what I mean? like the, that's added in as an yeah. In the actually, when you look at um, yes, the way I'll show you more of this a little bit later on, but. Um, yeah, when you look at the original manuscript, it was just Greek letters, and he basically had to figure out Spaces. what the spacing was. Paper was so expensive, they didn't want to waste time by double spacing or having extra spaces. But did you, did you guys notice how there was almost this instinct to know who was right and who was wrong? You know, so like with Beryl, even though we only had two people who had it correct, we all kind of knew that we're not sure if they had barrels back then. And... Who would say your eyes are the color of barrel, right? <laughs> it, it wouldn't quite make sense. And so there were some ways that we were able to kind of figure it out. We kind of, you know, you did the word count, and so you saw that a lot of them agreed. They were all kind of copying the same thing. One thing I was curious about, when you guys counted, did you count up all of them? Like, I, or did you count, like, didn't they used to count, like, the rows and then the columns mm -hmm. and the middle number? I mean, yeah, and that's often... <coughs> So here are some rules, okay, for determining which manuscript you go with, right? Well, one is the, the one with the best pedigree is to be preferred. So, like, in this case, we would not go with Gabe's manuscript because Gabe gave up. Right? <laughs> you know, that, I admit it fully. Yeah. 100. Do you know what I'm saying? Take mine. So the, the people who wrote down 79, you know, those were kind of the people who had the best pedigree. You know, they were they were faster, more accurate. They didn't give up. Sorry, Gabe, I'm taking on you. But You're fine. I yeah. understand. I understand. Yeah. 
So that's the thing. Like some, some manuscripts are better than others, right? They're they're just a better work, and obviously it gets transmitted from from text to text to text, and so the more accurate the upper texts are, the more accurate the lower text would be. Uh, the older read to heresy. Yeah, the older reading is to be preferred. Um, the manuscript that dates older. Uh, the older type is to be preferred. Can you show me the next slide? So this is uh, one of, this is, uh, when they first wrote it down, like when Paul wrote it down, he used this kind of lettering. Does this make sense? So this is called the unsealed script. And show me the next one. And then this is the minuscule script. Okay, they're all lowercase Greek letters. And so this came along later. Now, let's say you have a minuscule script that is 700 AD and an unsealed script, which is 800 AD. Which one do you take? The older type. And why would that be? Yeah, I mean, the, the process of changing this into the lowercase letter and doing that consistently is almost a recipe for making more mistakes. Does that make sense? So that's why you would take the older type. Um, geographical distribution, I want to show you the next one, sorry. So there are, um, you know, different kinds of families here, okay? And each one of them have different characteristics. Uh, the Byzantine text up there in uh, Constantinople, the Isthmus of Turkey, um, they have a tendency, there's a lot of manuscripts that come from that area, right? And so let's say you have that Jesus Christ is Lord versus Christ is Lord. If Jesus Christ is Lord, you have maybe 20 of them up here. But the alternative reading, you have one here, one here, and one here, right? Which one would you prefer? Well, because the Byzantine manuscript, you might have 20 of them, but it might be because they're in the same building and they're repeating the same mistake over and over again. They have a better copy machine. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this one, this is probably more you know, widespread, and so that's why you look at geographical distribution. Does that make sense? And then, uh, you know, the oldest quotations of the biblical text from the great centers of ancient Christianity, like Alexander, a lot of those great centers, they were especially trained and skilled in the scribal process to make sure they don't make mistakes. Um, choose the reading that best explains the origin of the others. And so here's an example. Uh, John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, diverged in the story of Christians finding the use of the key by which he was able to make his escape from Doubting Castle. One edition reads, the lock went desperately hard, while another reads the lock went damnable hard. Which is the original reading has, has been altered. Did, did Bunyan write desperately, and the modern editor changed it to damnable for some inexplicable reason? Or did Bunyan write damnable, using the word in non-profane text, and someone subsequently altered it in order to remove what was deemed to be an offensive expression? What do you think? Yeah, it'd be the second explanation. So you'd have a reason for changing it or excluding it. So that's why you go the other way. Um, the more difficult reading is to be uh, preferred. Um, if something doesn't quite make sense, the scribal tendency would be to kind of alter it so that it does. Does that make sense? 
So you would take the more difficult reading, and then the shorter reading is to be preferred, because sometimes people would uh, kind of split the difference. It's like, is Jesus Christ Lord? Is it Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Christ? Well, let's just put Jesus Christ as Lord. That way we're, we're not leaving anything out. Uh, in a parallel account, some different texts are to be preferred. Uh, like if you have a difference in the feeding of the 5,000 between Mark and Luke, you would take the one that's different because the scribal tendency would be to try to harmonize it. Uh, the text which contains less familiar grammar and syntax is to be preferred because the tendency is to try to fix it. The normal style and vocabulary of the author is to be preferred. If, if John you know, never uses a certain word and it's in this passage and he never uses it, then you'd probably say this just doesn't quite sound like him. Um, and the reading which matches the flow of the immediate context is to be preferred. Okay? So not all of these kind of check out. Um, you know, there is some, uh, you kind of have to kind of kind of weigh the pros and cons of which reading to take over the other. So we're going to go to the probably most famous textual variant in the Bible, which is John chapter 7. And, um, you know, this is a woman who is caught in adultery. Do you guys have any, anybody have a Bible with a footnote? What does your footnote say? Mine has it actually like in the text. <coughs> what does it say? It says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Uh-huh. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with mm -hmm. variations in the text. Okay. Okay. So it's a great story, right? Let, yeah, where the woman is caught in adultery, Jesus writes in the dirt, and he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, and nobody does it, and then he says, go and sin no more. Great, I mean, it, it is a, a great story, but the issue is, should it be in John at this point? So, manuscript summary, manuscripts including the story, these verses are present in the most medieval manuscripts. Many of the manuscripts that do not contain it mark it off as separate from the rest of the narrative. Perhaps the strongest support comes from Western Uncial D, which contains the Gospel and Acts and dates around the 5th century. Uh, manu manuscripts excluding the story, the bulk of the early manuscripts, including two of the more major manuscripts, Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which date around the 4th century and include most of the New Testament. <coughs> so the oldest manuscript summary is it's not there, but there is one prominent exception. So terms, um, including the text stands in the modern Bibles where John 7, 40, where it is, as you see, excluding there's a continuity between 52 and 812. So you look at the pedigree. You know, which one is a better manuscript? Well, including, Western Unsealed D includes the passage. This manuscript is known for its independence, deviation, and many other places. In the words of Metzger, he's a very prominent evangelical textual critical scholar. No known manuscript has so many and such remarkable variations from what's usually taken to be normal in the New Testament text. Excluding Codex Sinaiticus, the mother of all Greek manuscripts, as well as Codex Vaticanus, another heavy hitter, both excluded. So these are two of the manuscripts which serve as building blocks for most of the New Testament. So 
if you were to have a verdict, do you include or exclude based off the pedigree? What do you guys think? Who says include? Raise your hand. Who says exclude based off what you see? Okay. So you look at the age, right? The oldest manuscript, which contains it, dates around the fifth century. Excluding the oldest manuscripts that exclude it, date around AD 200 or AD 175 to 225. So include or exclude? Who says include? And who says exclude? Right? So you kind of see where we're going with this. Geography. Um, the story floated around parts of the Western Church, excluding much more widespread as it was found in Alexandria, Egypt, and the West. Right? So that would lead towards exclusion. Oldest quotations. Didymus the Blind, a fourth century exegete from Alexandria, cites a variation of the story. Excluding all the early church fathers and commenting on John pass immediately from 753 to 812. No Eastern father cites the passage before the 10th century. Right, so that would be exclude. Transcriptural probability. Examining the issue by looking at the scribe's perspective. Asking why the scribes would include or exclude it. What best explains the origins of others? Including. Some would argue that the scribes deliberately expunged the story from the gospel since Jesus' words at the end might be understood as being too lenient on adultery. Excluding. The other side argues that if a scribe came across a story that seemed worthy of being read and perpetuated, he might try to find a place where he could insert it. Right? And, and both of those are pretty good arguments, right? You know, so I would probably call this one a draw. Uh, the most difficult reading. Including the end of the narrative closes with a soft rebuke from Jesus, which no aesthetically minded monk would include. Right? So that would probably lean towards including it. The shorter reading, obviously excluding is a shorter reading. Intrinsic probability, examining the issue from the flow of the text. Style vocabulary, including the same vocabulary as found elsewhere in John. Excluding a series of consecutive death verses in 2, 3, 6, 7, and 9, 10, and 11, the style is absent from the rest of the gospel, which leads towards excluding. And then the flow of the immediate context, including the role of the story plays an important part in the theme of judging found in John 7 to 8. Since the passage takes place before Jesus explains that he is the light of the world, this might be an example of how Jesus showed the light. Excluding when we end the narrative of John, Jesus stands alone with the woman, yet in the next text, the text says, again, Jesus spoke to them. Further, water, light were synonymous with the Feast of Tabernacles, thus it would make sense for Jesus' light of the world discourse to dovetail on the living water sermonette. Right. So when you look at this, I mean, with what degree of certainty do we have that this is not in this portion of the Bible? Right. Now, does that change any of our theology? I mean, I have a New Testament professor who thinks, he says, this just seems to be a true story. And it could be. It, it could be. But we can't just say it's a biblical story, if that makes sense. So all that to say, do you guys kind of see how textual criticism works? Um, using a lot of common sense judgment, I mean, we're able to reconstruct the New Testament, I would say to 99% accuracy, and any time that you see like a variant, 
there's usually, uh, you know, th there's no real um, theological challenge or alteration there. Okay? So I'll field your questions now. I know I just gave you, like, water from a fire hydrant. <laughs> there's a lot to think of. And some of you are like, okay, 99% accuracy, I'm good to go. That's fine. But hopefully for others, it was uh, kind of opened your eyes to have, I think, more certainty about what we have in Scripture. I think if I was an unbeliever, uh -huh. my, I would like naturally ask, then, like, if it's a true story but not a biblical story, and Scripture is canonized text, like, inspired by God through man, then why is it in the Bible if it's not? Why is it in the Bible? Right, so like, I think uh -huh. it would, like, if I was an unbeliever, it would maybe poke a hole of like, uh -huh. well, if this doesn't really need to be here and man put it in, then what else is like that? That yeah. You know what I mean? That would be yeah, and I would say that through this process here, we know when men inserted a story. Mm -hmm. uh, we know when John wrote down his gospel, we know exactly what he wrote down. When Matthew wrote his gospel, we know what he wrote. When Paul wrote his letters, we know what he wrote. We're able to reconstruct it with almost absolute certainty. And the fact that we're able to identify this story um, as something that was inserted shows that the process works. If it's inserted, why is it included? Well, part of it was um, a lot of what we have right now was generated by uh, a man by the name of Johann Erasmus. And he constructed called something called, the um, I think, the majority text. The Textus Receptus is what he put together. And it, it was kind of a, during a time where they were kind of rediscovering classic language and there was kind of this um, philosophy of humanism, not as we see it, but kind of going back to the basics, going back to the bones, not just accepting tradition, but going to original sources. And so what he did was he collected a bunch of manuscripts and put together a version of the New Testament. And he used uh, a lot of manuscripts from the Byzantine area, right? So that's where it was plentiful. He wasn't able to be as well-traveled and well-journeyed. Um, and he put together the entire New Testament in Greek. But there are some parts, like at the end of Revelation, he didn't actually have a manuscript at the end of Revelation in Greek. He basically took Latin and translated it into Greek and inserted it. Okay? So that's the Textus Receptus. And that's what the uh, translators of the King James Bible used. So they basically used a different manuscript base. So the end of Mark was in that. Uh, John chapter 8, the one who adultery was in that. And there are some other passages that were in the Textus Receptus. But as more discoveries were made and we got more manuscripts and got more texts, which really evolved since then, you know, five centuries later, um, we have a more accurate understanding of the original text. So a lot of what we have in the Bible and those things that are inserted is because of the tradition of the King James Bible. Does that make sense? I think sometimes, too, like when I've read critiques of why uh -huh. you know, the Bible you know, can't be trusted and those type of things, they list a lot of times their perception of what Christians believe is that, you know, like it removes man totally. And God just presented this book. And, and so a lot of their criticisms are things that we would openly acknowledge mm -hmm. and, you know, that men critique it and they do textual analysis and we have these variants and we look at the differences mm -hmm. and they see those as contradictions. They, they don't see that God involved man and worked through the means of man. And so I think sometimes yeah. this it's a helpful thing to say, yeah, all that stuff that you're saying yeah. 
happen. It is true. And be, because of this process, God was able to maintain his word consistently. Yeah. It really testifies not only to God's greatness, but his ability to do it through men and hundreds yeah. of men. Or like, yeah, and, and we believe that the original writing of scripture was inspired, right. not the transmission. Right. And that's why like, you have like King James only people who are fanatical about it because they want to believe that the text that we have, you know, if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, you know, it's good enough for me. You know, it's kind of the catchphrase that they use. I think part of it is like, I think they're fearful that if we allow for any of these changes, we're basically giving away the store. Um, but yeah, and that's why people, you know, that's why they hold to the Textus Receptus. And that was the original text that was perfectly preserved for us. Uh, any mention of textual variance is very confrontational. But, but yeah, inspiration means the original manuscript, the autograph, what Paul wrote. That was inspired, not what somebody copied. So we have to reconstruct what they copied. And we're able to do it successfully. I mean, it's scholars, to say that we don't have the original New Testament, like in scholarly circles, is laughable. It, it, it truly is laughable when people say that, the, you know, it's like you don't know what you're talking about. You really don't. So are all translations equally reliable? Yeah, translation is a different. Or, or uh, ESV. Yeah, all the. New King James. So, like, King New James, King are James. Are all of those equally reliable? I would say there's two, two issues. New King James and King James relies, I think, on a, on a manuscript base. Um, that isn't as accurate. But if it's anything else other than those, like ESV, NASB, NIV, Holman, Coleman, the Christian Standard Bible, all of those are based off of the same manuscript. But you know, their, their philosophy in translation might be different. It might be word for word versus phrase by phrase or thought by thought. Uh, some try to update it. Like they don't say that Paul was stoned in Ephesus. You know, Paul was stoned in Lystra. That gets taken the wrong way now. So they'll add Paul was pelted with stones. Um, yeah, so that's... But the manuscript base is the same. Other so questions? what about the ones like that are summaries or like translations? This is just like an argument for somebody who is a strong proponent of like a message. Mm -hmm. What about those and how do you conversations about those yeah and, and that's a, that's all translational theory so they're still using the original I think the original you know text um, but one of the issues with the message is when you do thought for thought do you really get into the mind of the authors and is it the translators um, how much do you interject yourself to m help people make sense of the message and all translations do. That's why I always recommend that you that you read when you're studying the Bible. Read three or four different translations, so you kind of look past people's opinions. And if they're all saying the same thing, you have you, you, you kind of have a sense of okay, I, I see where they're going. But like the NIV, it doesn't translate uh, Sark's flesh, which is what the other translations do. They call it sinful nature, right? So they're making an interpretation when they say that. And so as you kind of compare side by side, you're just like, okay, it says sinful nature, and that probably is correct, but that's not necessarily what you're <coughs> going to find in the Greek. So that's why when you kind of compare different translations, you're able to see what people do. So when I study a given passage, I read five different translations. 
and then I kind of note significant differences that they have between the two. And sometimes it's just a way of saying it. It's not, I mean, it's really the same thing, but sometimes it kind of alters the meaning. Okay, other questions? I've noticed too that, that a lot of times it's, it's kind of a smoke screen that if someone brings something up, they want you to be, you know, thrown off by that and yeah. kind of follow through and have just a little bit of, oh yeah, well, I, now I'm this, and this is what yeah. so-and-so says, then kind of the woman at the well, they move on to something else, some other objection. Yeah, and I, I think it's like, really, there's a really good answer for that. Do you want to hear it, or you just, or not? Yeah, I had somebody, we were going through this back and forth, and at one point he said, look, I don't care how many, you know, these things you say, yeah. and whatnot, I'm like, okay, well. Yeah, it's a smokescreen, yeah. I mean, if you really want to know the, know the answer, and so when I sit down and I, I talk with, um, people on the an airplane and, and show the gospel with them. And I kind of explain the basics of textual criticism. Like you do the exercise we just did with Ezekiel. It's like, oh, okay, that's how it works. You know, we instinctively know how to piece it together. And so textual criticism is we just kind of write down the rules that we instinctively use. And like, okay, that makes sense. <coughs> so I think when, when you read the Bible, when you're reading 1 Corinthians, you are reading a translation of what Paul actually wrote. I mean, and that's an amazing statement and you look at how many manuscripts that the Bible has versus the Iliad or the Odyssey I mean it is unbelievable and from, you might comment from what I've read and heard that's say in the last 50 years 100 years like it's not like on a downward trend like in the academic Bible scholar or critical like it's gone up like it's going up yeah it's and going up in terms of our certainty of the actual text yeah, so that more, gap more is more evidence closing. more and more criticism has actually led that the number of you know, scholarly professors that believe this is the actual text has really risen a lot. Yeah, and now you might disagree when it was written or other things, yeah. but as far as what we have, we have Paul's letter to the Romans. What, how you interpret it is up to you, but we know that we have right, right message. So let me go ahead and pray and I'll let you guys go. Well, Father, we do thank you just for the gift of, of scholarship, and we see it working for good as far as preserving the original text. And we thank you that when we read the Bible, we read the words uh, that were revealed to the original author. And so I pray that this gives people more confidence in the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. amen.